0: Well, thank you so much for tuning in to watch this today. And I'm kind of glad to be back a little bit from some of this pneumonia stuff. I'm glad to tell you that it was not COVID, whatever it is. We don't have any idea, but it um, takes a little while to recover. And so we're doing that. So I may stop and cough and, you know, may have to catch my breath or whatever, but um, we'll do this. So thank you so much for your prayers. Psalm 36. Okay, this has been uh, just a little short psalm that had a whole lot more in it than I ever expected. Probably you too, and um, we've kind of done a four point or four part thing in it. And I guess it probably could have been like one message with four points, but it seemed like that there was a strategy here that the Holy Spirit has working through David. And I want to um, take it and kind of point it toward us in, in this way. Have you ever struggled with witnessing? Have you ever felt guilty about witnessing? Have you ever wondered why it is that there are some people that they seem to be just natural witnesses? I mean, um, effervescent, you know what I mean by that? They're almost like if you took a, a bottle of Sprite out of the refrigerator, shook it up real good, and then opened it up. The Sprite doesn't have to work to spray out; it it just does it. And I don't mean to imply that witnessing should never be work. It's certainly a battle, and it's a it's a war against the flesh and against the enemy, and even the resistance of the other person. Um, so I don't mean to imply that, but I do mean to kind of ask you to think about this. When you read through the book of Acts, it seems like witnessing was a whole lot more natural to them and took place in the natural, uh, some people call it the natural traffic patterns of life, more than it does for us. And um, I think that there ought to be just a natural exuberance and a desire to share. And there also ought to be maybe if you think about the Apostle Peter saying, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. um, An answer. That intrigues me, an answer. Is anybody asking? And so this ought to be flowing out of us and it ought to be a passion in our life. It ought to be a natural thing to talk about someone that we love. Well, as I was Getting ready to finish up this psalm, in the last few verses, there's a marked change. In fact, there are several of them in here. And let's just kind of take a, just a few moments and let's review. Let's go back and we'll read the whole thing. So go back to verse 1, Psalm 36. And we talked, first of all, in this first week about the depravity of human beings. You know, we forget that we are depraved. Uh, We may acknowledge it in a faith statement or some type of a declaration. But in everyday life, in thinking about us and our problems, about falling short of the glory of God. Heard about a guy one time that prayed in church and there was more than one snicker when he said, uh, Dear Lord, please forgive us of our falling shorts. But uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And we do that before we're saved, but we do that after we're saved. It is so easy, and it's like we have a gravitational pull pulling us down all the time, and we need to overcome it. This depravity is in our kids. It's in our church. It's in our society. It's in in everything that we do. And so David said, an oracle or a burden within my heart Concerning the transgressions of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. We all look better than we think we really are. And it says when he finds out his iniquity. And when he hates. uh, The words of his mouth. Our wickedness and deceit. There's always the deceitful um, uh, edge to everything. Something hidden, the hidden agenda. You know, we're in a political season. That ought not be a surprise that politicians lie, twist facts, and do those kind of things. But we all kind of have that within us. We kind of, you know, pretend to be something that we're not. It says he has... Ceased to be wise and to do good. And then it's not enough what he's already done. He devises wickedness on his bed. He invents more sin, in other words, and sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Okay? Now, without going back over all of that, that's depravity, that's depressing. And yet it's very, very, very real. Again, the old illustration. You did not have to teach your child to disrespect you. You did not have to teach your child to lie. You don't have to teach your child to be selfish. This is inherent within us. So David talks about the doctrine of the depravity of human beings. We're all born with a sin nature that rebels against God. Now, we get to the next section, and we talked about God's mercy, his faithfulness, and his righteousness, and then his wrath. And it says, your mercy, verse 5, O Lord is in the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And it's unaffected by the environment of sin and uh, depravity and all of that kind of stuff, the inconsistencies of man. Verse 6. Your righteousness is like the great mountains and your judgments are a great deep, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. And so we look at the inconsistency of man and the nature of man and the sinfulness of man, and then all of a sudden we see the gloriousness and the power, and the righteousness, and the splendor, and the faithfulness of God. Now, if all you do is look at the depravity of man, you're just going to want to bunker up somewhere, aren't you? But if you look at the glories and the righteousness of God, you're going to see the depravity of man. You can't help it. But your focus is going to be in a different place. And instead of being so depressed and discouraged by all of the depravity you see around you, you're going to be encouraged by the faithfulness of a holy God who loved you and gave his son to pay for your sins, who loves you and invests in you and is this unchanging God who loves you with an everlasting love. Isn't that a better way to go? To be able to look at the positive instead of the negative. The negative is real. And then thirdly, uh, this is what we did last week. We talked about that Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Okay, I get that. But the last part of it, and to enjoy Him forever. How are you enjoying your salvation? How are you enjoying this faithful God? The Bible says in verse 7, how precious is, ...is your loving kindness. O God, therefore the children of men... ...put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied... ...with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink... ...from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life... And in your light, we see light. Everything you're wanting, everything you desire, everything that can enhance your life is found in the Lord. Now, the devil will try, just like he did successfully, I might add, with Eve to get her eyes off of all of the things that she had and then focus on that one thing that she couldn't have. Do you ever do that? I do. You know, sometimes it's not enough just to have a car because you want to have the car in it. It's not enough to have a house that shelters you and uh, keeps you warm and dry and safe, cool as it may be. You know, you've got to have the house. And there's nothing wrong with having nice things. It's just that the Bible tells us we are to practice contentment. Boy, where, where is that doctrine? Uh, gone we don't really even think about that anymore do we and so when we are content not with just our stuff I don't, I don't mean to uh, just get stuck on that the contentment needs to be in the Lord and he'll provide whatever he wants you to have hey he may give you a five million dollar mansion and I hope he does but at the same time You can be in a $5 million mansion and be absolutely miserable, ruining your marriage, ruining your family, dishonoring God, and uh, end up with a horrible testimony, right? Because the container in which you live your life is not really the issue. It's your life that is the issue and a life that finds its contentment in God and enjoys God Can be happy. Well, that's why Paul and Silas in Philippians, I mean in Acts 16 in Philippi, that's why they were singing songs at midnight in a prison. You see, we think that we have to have the right environment to make everything right. That's psychobabble. That's secular humanism that does that. Now, will I admit I tend to function better? When the temperature's right. When I've got plenty to eat. When I'm able to rest. Those kind of things. You and I are made like that. Again, there's no sin in that. Until we get to the point to where we say, I can't serve God until my environment is right. Because the Bible says, in the latter days, perilous times are coming. I think we're entering in to some of these perilous times, don't you? And if we get to the point to where we have to have everything to our liking and everything perfect before we can get it right, well, number one, we'll never attain that because that just doesn't go with who we are. And secondly, as we do that, what's the enemy going to attack? It's like waving a red flag. Just make me uncomfortable. Just make something not to my liking and then I'll quit. And I'll abandon everything that God wants me to do. You see what we're saying? When we think about finding our contentment in the Lord, it's more than just maybe putting up with it and saying, well, this is all that I've got. David seems to be pointing something else out. Look at the beauty of what you have in the Lord. It's it's not just I'm stuck with God. It's I am enriched, I am blessed, and I am favored by him. Okay, so depravity, we've got to recognize that, or we're going to get arrogant, we're going to get proud, and we don't turn to the Lord. That's really the bottom line, the starting point of the gospel, is seeing who you are. You're never going to get anybody saved until you get them lost. And then you, as a saved person, need to understand who you are. We've got to be able to look at the Lord and see how different He is than us. We've got to see that He is everything that we are not. And when He gives Himself to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to enjoy that and find our contentment in it because that's where true riches are. Now, look at the next set of verses. And that's where we're going to, zero in today down at verse 10 oh continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away there the workers of iniquity have fallen they have been cast down and are not able to rise. When you look at these verses, did you notice what David did? He has gone from being uh, this one who is thinking and contemplating about, I'm going to say it, theology, doctrine about himself and about God and who he is. And yet he can't stay there. He can't just stop and say, good for me. And look at everything that I have. You notice the first thing he does is he breaks out into prayer. You know, I've talked to so many people that struggle in their prayer life. And I want to suggest maybe the reason you struggle with praying is because your theology is off. And maybe you don't really see your desperate need for Christ. Maybe you don't really see how horrible hell is, how you were headed there without any hope, without any recourse, except that a sovereign God sent his son to die for you and send his spirit to give you faith to believe in him and drew you with cords of love to the cross of Calvary. And and maybe you don't really see yourself the way that you ought to. And maybe you don't really care about witnessing to other people because you don't see people around you, even your own kids, even your own kids as hell bound sinners who are trapped in sin and sinners by nature and on their way to hell and that you can't do anything about it. They can't do anything about it. There's only one who can save and that is the Lord. Now, if you really believe that, you're not going to have any problems praying, especially for the lost and praying for saved people. David said in here that he wanted the Lord's... um, How did he put that? Continue your loving kindness. That's a covenant covenant term to those who know you. Now, why would I want to do that if I'm seeing depravity and if I'm seeing the faithfulness of God and I'm enjoying walking with God? And here's my summation of it. I think if I really understand that and I'm really walking with God like that, I want other people to experience it as well. And when I understand how helpless they are, I understand there's only one place to go. You see, I don't really understand why somebody who rejects the doctrine of election and all of that would come down and bother praying that God would save somebody. You've already, by your own admission, said God's done everything he can do. It's all up to them. You need to be talking to that person instead of talking to God. That doesn't make any sense. But if you understand that God is the sovereign one who changes hearts, who chooses and brings people into the family of God by his grace and through no merit of their own, then it makes perfect sense to say, oh God, you are so perfect and I am so wicked and I enjoy you so much and I've got somebody here that I'm concerned about their soul and I want them to enjoy this too. And so Lord... For saved people, I want you to continue what you're doing so that it's not just me, but it's all the saved people that this lost friend comes into contact with that are seeing the loving kindness of God. I want it to continue. I want it to be evident. I want it to be something that they run into everywhere they go. And your righteousness to the upright in heart That tells me I need to live right in front of these people. I am a living tool. You are a living tool that God uses to bring his elect to faith in Christ. And he tends to do that through those who are upright in heart. So if your heart's not right, then you're probably not going to pray. And if you're not praying, then you're not really caring about the uh, loving kindness of God being uh, expressed in other people's lives, especially as a witness for Christ. You see, when your theology gets right, you want it to go out. When the truth of the Scripture comes in, you're going to want it to go out, obeying the Great Commission. Does that make sense? Number two, notice that David says the right theology brings vigilance. Vigilance. Not this casual, haphazard, God will save him if he wants to. And oh, well, it's not really any big deal. Notice how he says, let not the foot of pride come against me. Oh, Lord, I don't want some proud, arrogant, lost person to be able to trip me up. Because as believers, sometimes we're not as wise as we ought to be. We're not as discerning As we ought to be, right? And there are those times when we ought to be paying closer attention than we really are. Standing firm, be um, on guard, Paul said, right? Uh, In Ephesians 6, standing fast in the power of the Lord, Um, 1 Corinthians 16 13 and 14, a whole list of commands there about standing firm. In the faith. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be vigilant. Be careful little eyes what you see. Remember that song? Be careful little hands what you do. Um, That's what it's got to be. Let not the foot of pride come against me. I don't want to get tripped up. Vigilance. Got to watch out for it. Because pride will always make you think you are standing. And Paul told us. Let him who thinks he stands. Take heed. Lest he fall. You got to, you know, with with the old saying, the devil's in the details. Boy, many times that's true. A lot of times it's the little things that get you, trip you up, that get you distracted or bring you into a a place of vulnerability. You better be careful. Number three, David then moves into humility. You know, whenever you get your theology and doctrine right, you're not going to be an arrogant jerk. You're going to be a humble and compassionate person. The Bible says here, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. You know, it'd be easy for David to say, I'm a man after God's own heart. You know, these things that are going on around me and the wickedness, I can handle it. It's no big deal. But at this point in David's life, David has a very humble outlook. Understanding not only can Uh, the uh, pride of the wicked trip him up, but the hand of the wicked can lead him astray. Various ways that can happen. Sometimes a hand may take you and pull you into something. Sometimes a hand may shove you into something. Sometimes a hand may grab you and prevent you from getting away. Isn't that right? And David understood that, And he understood that he needed to walk in humility and that dependence upon the Lord. I need thee, the old hymn says, on Sunday morning. I need thee at mealtime. I need thee during my quiet time. Is that what it says? I need thee every hour. Because you don't know when the enemy is going to attack and they don't always attack in the way you think they are going to. And at the time, you think they are going to. That's why you've got to stand on guard. And then number four, David's theology brought him an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. It's not just about what's going on now or how can I make it through this day or through this trial or through this situation and then I can forget about God and everything else. It says in verse 12, There the workers of iniquity have fallen and they have been cast down and are not able to rise. You know what David is saying? I'm seeing more than just what's going on now. It looks like the devil's in control. It looks like that the wicked are winning. It looks like they've got the upper hand. But David said, oh God, don't ever let me lose the big picture. Jesus wins, they lose, end of story. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is in control, they lose, end of story. We've got to keep that in perspective. We may lose a battle now and then, but we've already won the war. And we've got to keep that kind of of a footing. Now, I want to close by saying, now this, this man, after God's own heart, David, who wrote this wonderful stuff, you know, we've got an illustration in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. And it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, or at least should, David sent Joab. Last I read, Joab wasn't a king, was he? And his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Oh, something's not right. This isn't sounding right or feeling right. And it happened that one afternoon when David arose from his couch... And was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof. A woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent. And inquired about the woman. And uh, one said. Is not this Bathsheba. The daughter of uh, Eliam. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her and uh, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness that's just a way of saying she was very fertile and uh, then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I'm pregnant okay we'll stop reading there because This is the opposite of the man we find in Psalm 36. This man is not doing any of those things that he had done before. In fact, think about this. At this particular time, David's not praying. He's turned inward. And he's thinking about himself. Now, I don't think that David woke up that day and said, Hey, this would be a great day to commit adultery. I don't think that happened. But I think that it illustrates the depravity that David had where everything could change. He may have even had a quiet time that morning. He may have been to the temple. Who knows what he had done? But he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't fighting the battle. He wasn't in the, on the war footing where he was supposed to be. He gets up from the couch, taking it easy, had a good afternoon nap, and then what happens? He ends up in sin. You see, this is what happens when we forget about the things and the truths that we learn and we don't apply them to our lives. David forgot about his own depravity and he's not praying here. He is looking at himself. Not outward in the right way, at least. He's looking inward to his own desires. He's not thinking about Uriah he's not thinking about Bathsheba he's not thinking about his other wives he's not thinking about his children he's not thinking about his kingdom and he's certainly not conscious of God at this point you'll notice here that he also wasn't vigilant if he had he would have run but uh, no he thought he could handle it he wasn't vigilant it wasn't that big a deal you know Jesus told us guys that if we look upon a woman To lust after her. We've already committed adultery in our heart. So when did David commit adultery? Well he did it much sooner than he thought he did. And much sooner than most of us think we do. Because it wasn't the first look. It was the second look. The look with intent. See that's where he messed up. He should have been vigilant. Not to take that second look. And to get away from there. To get out of dodge. You'll notice that he became arrogant. I deserve this, I can have this, I want this, I'm the king, I'm going to have this. And it didn't matter what anybody else thought, what it said, it didn't even matter what the consequences might be, he's going to have it. And then you notice here that he is focused on the now, not an eternal perspective. You see, at this particular point, he doesn't give a rip about Bathsheba in her eternal destiny, does he? And you know, so many times we lose focus of that and we forget about other people's souls. And we use them. We use them for our purposes. We use them selfishly and we don't think about them. But what an antidote Psalm 36 would have been to David in First Samuel chapter 11. You see it? And it's the same with us today. So may God give us the grace to take our sound doctrine and theology and let it change us and transform us into people of prayer and vigilance and humility and to give us an eternal perspective in everything we do. And there you see one of the big differences between King David and the Apostle Paul who would suffer all things for the sake of God's elect, he said. Why? Because he had those things. And that's why Paul could write in 2 Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And there's a crown laid up for me. And not everybody can say that. It's not just a matter of getting old and being in church a long time. It's a matter of actually finishing the race It's actually fighting the fight. And Psalm 36 gives us the tools to do that. And 1 Samuel 11 gives us an illustration of what happens when we don't. Let's fight the good fight. We need it. This world needs it. Your children need it. Our church needs it. Our society needs it. It's time It's time to get our theology in order and let it affect our life in the proper way. Thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you for your giving. Continue to give to the church. We're getting ready to open up Sunday school and children's church and uh, those type of things. Pray about the fall festival and the way we're going to be doing that this year. And let's use this to reach people for Jesus Christ and for his glory. God bless you and thank you.